0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Recently, I've been sleeping flat on my belly, and my chiropractor said that if I'm going to do that, I should really have as firm a mattress as possible. So I didn't have to get a new mattress. I just cranked my sleep number up all the way to 100, and I've avoided any lower back pain that sometimes comes with belly sleeping. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Home is your creative canvas, an expression of your unique style. Only Wayfair has everything you need to bring your vision to life. It's the place to shop for everything home. From sofas and beds to dining sets and decor, Wayfair makes it easy with fast and free shipping, even on the big stuff. They'll even help you set it up. Our house is full of Wayfair finds, from wall art to rugs to vases and more. Our go-to is always Wayfair. Every style is welcome in the Waverhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com. Wayfair. Every style, every home. Hi, crime junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm
0: Britt. And today I want to tell you about a place that sort of tucked away from the rest of the world, nestled in the Sierra Nevada mountains of Northern California, a town where for a long time everybody knew everybody else. Nobody was afraid to keep their doors unlocked, and the yards were literally surrounded with white picket fences. It used to be the kind of town where bad things weren't supposed to happen. Until one fateful spring night over 40 years ago, when something very bad did happen. This is the story of the Ketty Cabin murders. On April 11th, 1981, in Ketty, California, 14 year old Sheila Sharp is looking forward to something that I know you and I used to look forward to growing up a Saturday night sleepover with one of her best friends. <laughs> Sheila is going over to her friend Alyssa's house, and thank God, because it's about to get hectic in the small cabin that she shares with her mom and four siblings. It's her older brother, John, her little brothers, Ricky and Greg, and her little sister, Tina. And on this night, her brothers are actually having friends over, so it's going to be, like, packed over there.
1: So when you say they live in a cabin, my mind instantly goes to, you know, like, out in the middle of the woods, nearest neighbor is pretty far away.
0: So you're half right. So they're definitely out in the woods. And Ketty's this like minuscule small town right near several of Northern California's national forests. But the Sharp family's cabin is not as isolated as you might think because you see it's part of a resort area. The way the Ketty resort is laid out, there's around 25 or 30 cabins out here and they're all built pretty close to each other. Like, for example, the Sharp's house is literally only like 15 feet away from the cabin next door. Oh, okay. So yeah, so Sheila's not going on like some big adventure. She's literally able to walk right over to Alyssa's house where they'll do pretty typical sleepover stuff. Like they watch some TV, they
1: talk for a while. They burn grass-scented candles, paint nails with glow-in-the-dark polish, and I don't know, maybe (laughs) rewrite some country songs about boys that they loved and hated.
0: I mean, if she's anything like us, yes. (laughs) But after a pretty normal night, they head to bed. Since the next morning, April 12th, is a Sunday, Sheila wakes up pretty early so she can say goodbye to Alyssa and walk home to get ready for church. According to an article in the Sacramento Bee, she gets back to her family's cabin at about 8 o'clock and when Sheila opens the door, she stumbles onto a scene that changes her life forever. Right there in the front room is mayhem. Blood is spattered from the carpet to the ceiling and everywhere in between. Through the confusion clouding her mind when she comes upon this scene, Sheila sees three bodies and she can tell that one of them is covered by a blanket and the other two are tied up. Now, she doesn't know who's who, but in that moment, Sheila's mind kicks into survival mode. She drops her overnight bag and runs full speed back to Alyssa's house to tell them that something terrible has happened. Since Alyssa's family doesn't have a phone, her parents run to the Ketty Resort office to call police while they send their oldest son, Jamie, back to the Sharp cabin with Sheila.
1: I mean, is it just the mom and me coming out or is it maybe not like the greatest idea to send two kids back to the house where, I don't know, the killer could still be?
0: Maybe, but Sheila and Jamie aren't taking any chances. I mean, they don't go anywhere near the front door. Instead, when they go back, they peek through a bedroom window. And it's actually a good thing they went back because inside they see something incredible. According to Stephen Capp's piece for the San Francisco Examiner, Sheila's two younger brothers, Ricky, who's nine, and Greg, who's five, are in the bedroom sleeping with their friend and next-door neighbor, Justin Easton.
1: Wait, they're alive?
0: Yes. By the time the police arrive, Sheila and Jamie have managed to wake them up and get all three boys out of the house, taking them through the window to spare them having to see the carnage in the front room. Law enforcement, though, has to see it. And as soon as they get inside the sharps' cabin, it becomes all too obvious that, if anything, what they're seeing is worse than what they were expecting. They see the huge amounts of blood all over the room. And they also noticed that the walls have been gouged. One of the police is actually quoted in a local newspaper saying it looks like somebody basically stabbed the wall. And everywhere they look, there are signs of a struggle. Signs? Someone tried to flee knowing that their life was on the line. Near the front of the room, almost as soon as you walk in the door, is where they found the first two victims. Sheila's 15-year-old brother, John, and his friend, Dana Wingate. They're tied together at their ankles, and officers notice one of the boys is lying face up and the other is face down, and whoever killed them used electrical cords and medical tape to tie them up. Deeper in the room, they can see the third body, which appears to be an adult female covered in a yellow blanket. It's easy to tell that the woman is Sheila and John's mom, Glenna Susan Sharp, who most people call Sue. According to Victoria Metcalf's reporting in the Plumas News, Sue's lying on her side right near the couch, naked from the waist down, and gagged with what looks like a blue bandana covered in more medical tape.
1: I mean, the fact that she's naked from the waist down makes me feel like this is way more sexually motivated than the other two.
0: Yeah, I kind of think that too, but just like with a definitive cause of death, police won't know if Sue was sexually assaulted until after the autopsy. There's not a lot of information out there about what exactly police are doing at the house beyond collecting what they can and documenting the scene with the resources their tiny office has available. I can tell you, though, that as police try to make sense of just what happened here, they come across what could be the murder weapons right there, just sort of out in the open. Jeff Truesdell reported for People magazine that police find a bloody claw hammer and a butcher knife lying on the little table near the sharps kitchen. And there's a bent steak knife on the floor, also covered in blood. All of the stuff is bagged up and sent off for analysis while Sue, Johnny and Dana's bodies are being transported to Sacramento for autopsy. Like I said, Keddie's basically a blip on the map, and Sacramento, being the state capital of California, has way more resources for law enforcement. But remember how I told you Sheila lived with her mom and four siblings? Yeah. So if you're counting, that's one brother who's deceased, two brothers who were pulled alive from the room, and... And a sister that's not there. Yes. And so not only are they wondering who killed these three people, but also... Where is Tina Sharp? It's such a nice perk to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places. But working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anyone else. And that's been great for me especially, because these last few months, I've been doing a lot of on-the-ground reporting with our team, from Northern Wisconsin to Utah to the middle of nowhere Indiana. No matter where I go, I'm able to stream, make calls, or get those case-altering DMs from sources, which that's my favorite part. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Find out more at TMobile.com/network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median, overall combined 5G speeds, according to analysis by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data Q3 2023. See 5G device coverage and access details at TMobile.com. Spring has sprung and so has allergy season. But when it comes to the cost of your allergy meds and other prescriptions, checking GoodRx can help you save and stay healthy. GoodRx is the free, fast, and easy way to find the prescriptions you need at a lower price. With GoodRx, you can instantly find discounts, compare prices, and save up to 80% at the pharmacy. GoodRx is accepted at all major pharmacies in your neighborhood, including CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid Bonds, Walmart, Sam's Club, and many more. And remember, GoodRx works whether you have insurance or not. Even if you have insurance, GoodRx may beat your copay price. So if you're looking for seasonal allergy relief with low-cost prescription medications, GoodRx is a walk in the park for you this spring. For simple, smart savings on your prescriptions, check GoodRx. Go to goodrx.com slash crimejunkie. That's goodrx.com slash crimejunkie.
1: Okay, but we know that Sheila was at a friend's house that night. So is anyone considering that maybe Tina was too? You said it was a pretty full house.
0: Well, if they ever do, that thought's discarded almost immediately because all of my source material going right back to the days just after the murders in April of 81 lists Tina as missing. Now, since they just don't have the resources to tackle a multiple homicide and an abduction, police don't waste any time calling in the FBI and the State Department of Justice for help. While they're waiting for the FBI to arrive, police scour the area going door to door at every cabin in the Caddy Resort to interview the neighbors and track down witnesses. Remarkably, though, according to the San Francisco Examiner, all of the Sharps' neighbors tell police they didn't hear a single thing that night.
1: OK, but there were three little kids still in the cabin. Like, surely they had to have heard something. Well, according to that same article, they slept through all of it. Okay, but that feels so extreme to me. Like, I have kids. I get it. There's a lot that you'd be surprised that they can sleep through. But this was a violent attack, a violent triple homicide. I'm having trouble imagining anyone being able to sleep through it. I mean, is there any chance that the kids were drugged? I mean, I wondered
0: that too, but I didn't see anything in my source material about Greg or Ricky or Justin ever even being tested for drugs. So I don't know. And maybe that wasn't even on their minds then. But I agree. It feels... I don't want to say unbelievable,
1: but but... at the very least unlikely.
0: Yeah. And yet that's what the evidence is telling police. So with the mystery of the survivors still swirling in their minds, investigators kick into high gear Sunday afternoon. Local search and rescue teams go out scouring the woods and all around the resort looking for anything to point them to a killer or to Tina's whereabouts or, you know, hopefully both. Because police believe Tina could hold the key to solving this case. They're thinking, you know, she might have been a witness and that maybe that's why she vanished. The killer or killers took her to tie up loose ends. So on Monday, police and the FBI put out an APB for Tina Sharp. The bulletin describes her as having long blonde hair and a slight build and wearing blue jeans and a light blue shirt. The bulletin goes out to three surrounding counties and also across the state border to Reno, Nevada, about two hours drive east of Ketty, requesting not only that people be on the lookout for Tina, but also asking local hospitals in those areas to check if anyone had come in over the past 48 hours with cuts or knife wounds.
1: If Tina was a witness, though, like, why would the perp not just kill her? Like, he's already killed three other people. Yeah, it doesn't make sense,
0: right? So... Even though at the time, all of the source material says that they thought maybe she was a witness, honestly, internally, they were also considering the fact that perhaps she was really the target all along.
1: Yeah, see, that makes so much more sense to me. Like, I can see an entire family doing anything to protect their little girl, so you'd literally have to kill them to get to her. Right. So that might be a motive. But,
0: you know, the question becomes, who would want to take a little girl? Well... As police start looking into Sue Sharp's background, police start looking squarely at one person, a person with a grudge. And that's Sue's ex-husband, Jim. Jeff Truesdell reported for People magazine that law enforcement learns that Sue had fled across the country from the East Coast to California in the late 1970s in a bid to escape her abusive marriage. And when she left, she took all five of her and Jim's kids with her. And, as Sheila Sharp told the show People Investigates for their episode on this case, Jim's abuse wasn't just limited to Sue. In fact, Sheila recalls that Jim sexually abused her and Tina for years until the family escaped and that Tina was his favorite target.
1: And was Jim still on the East Coast at the time of the murders?
0: Well, that's exactly what police are trying to find out. You see, Jim was in California by this time during the investigation. He had come out as soon as he found out about the murders. And police want to be sure that he wasn't there before. So pretty much from the second he sets foot in the state, Jim is put under surveillance by police. They're not just looking for anything to suggest he's the killer, but they're also looking for anything to indicate he might know where Tina is. But when they interrogate him, Jim says he's got an alibi. He's in the Navy and he tells police, look, I was back at my base in Connecticut. And much to their frustration, he can prove it. He might have been a scumbag with no business being a husband or father, but he was almost 3,000 miles away at the time of the murders. While Jim turns out to be a dead end, the investigation is far from stalled, because police have a ton of other tips to follow. They check out one of Tina's teachers, this guy who's known for being a little too interested in her. Like, apparently he kept framed portraits of her on his desk. Oh, I do not like that at all. No, like, should be a red flag for any parent. But this guy has an alibi, too. Walt Wiley reported for the Sacramento Bee that police get hundreds of tips just over the first weekend after the murders. But even with the help from the FBI and the State Department of Justice, police are overwhelmed. Literally, the county sheriff is quoted in the same article describing the investigation as, quote, going in circles. By late Monday, though, lab tests confirmed to law enforcement that the hammer and the two knives found at the cabin are, in fact, the murder weapons. Preliminary autopsy reports confirm that Sue, John, and Dana died from stab wounds and multiple blows to the head. But as I saw in the People Investigates episode, police believe a second hammer was used too, even though they've only found one. They also believe that the murders and Tina's abduction happened sometime between 11 p.m. on Saturday night and 2 a.m. on Sunday morning.
1: And did the autopsy give any clarity about whether or not Sue had been sexually assaulted? Well, according
0: to multiple articles I read, there's no evidence of sexual assault. According to Marv Snow and Dave Moeller's Feather River Bulletin piece, by Wednesday, police have ruled out burglary and drugs as possible motives. What I find super interesting, though, is in that same article, the sheriff mentions that the
1: killings could be a copycat-type situation. A copycat of what? Like, did they have something similar in the area before? It has to exist before it can be copied.
0: All great questions. All he says in that article was that there were similar crimes somewhere else in Northern California, but that's it. And of course, like, I tried looking it up, but like nothing in my research points to which crimes he's referring to either. I mean, this it literally drives me bananas. It's like a one off mention in this case because I would Love to be able to tell you more, tell you if they are connected. So if anyone is from Northern California from the time, please reach out to us and let us know. But that's it. That one blurb, nothing else. Uh. Now, meanwhile, the searches for Tina keep going hand in hand with the murder investigation as the clock ticks and police ramp up their efforts. They're doing grid searches, jeep caravans, helicopters. They bring in sniffer dogs. They have countless hours logged on foot in the forest and none of this none of these things turn up any trace of tina sharp on april 20th law enforcement formally suspends their search and it takes almost exactly a month after the murders before police decide to try something a little unorthodox to finally catch a break this podcast is brought to you by squarespace Spring is about fresh starts. That could mean starting a new venture or switching things up on your website. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Use Squarespace to design a website, engage with your audience, and sell anything from products to time, all in one place. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. Accept credit cards, PayPal, Apple Pay, and in certain countries, give customers the chance to buy now and pay later with Afterpay and Clearpay. Selling content on your website? Add a paywall to sell memberships or courses or sell downloadable files. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com crimejunkie to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
2: You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. They put Justin Easton,
0: one of the boys who survived the cabin massacre, under hypnosis. And while he's under hypnosis, he tells police... About a strange dream he had on the night of the murders. According to more of Victoria Metcalf's reporting, Justin says that in his dream, he was on the love boat with Sue, the Sharp Boys, and their friends who were at the cabin that night. In Justin's dream, two men got into a fight with John and Dana and threw them overboard. One of the men had a pocket knife in one hand and a hammer in the other, and he used the knife to cut Sue right across the chest. Both men then escaped from the bloody ship on life rafts. Now, this is strange enough on its own, but it gets even more bizarre when police arrange for Justin to be hypnotized a second time. This time, instead of talking about a dream, he talks about Tina Sharp, who's still missing without a trace. Justin says Tina woke up during the attack and came into the front room to see what was going on. She was holding a blanket, and one of the men grabbed her and took her outside. He came right back, alone, pulled his hunting knife out of the wall, and then went back outside.
1: Okay, so you know I'm side-eyeing the whole hypnosis thing a little bit. A little bit, yeah. But this doesn't sound like a dream. We know that these exact weapons were found at the house and used in the murders. Mm -hmm. We know there was a fight and a struggle. It sounds like Justin might have seen what happened and his brain is setting up this dream scenario to cope with it.
0: I mean, that makes sense for a little kid, right? Like, you you, you probably can't even process that something like that would really be happening. And the only way it could is, is... If you make it into a dream. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, whatever really happened, if this really was a dream or if, like you're saying, it's a coping mechanism, police take it seriously. So seriously, in fact, that since Justin's able to describe what these two men in his quote unquote dream looked like, they have composite sketches made. And here, I'm going to send these to you, Britt.
1: So the sketches are pretty rough, in my opinion, there are these two white guys. They're wearing glasses, but you can't really see the eyes in the sketches. One has a mustache and kind of slicked back, parted hair. And the other one has hair almost to his shoulders, so it's longer and kind of parted down the middle, straight hair.
0: Yeah, I feel like the hair is like the most distinctive part.
1: Yeah, they almost look like, and obviously this happened in the 80s, but one kind of looks like John Lennon and the other one looks like he could be like a bartender from the 1930s. <laughs> Super awful. Well,
0: super helpful or not, police released these sketches to the public towards the end of May. So about six weeks after the murders, though, obviously, they don't tell the public where they got them from. They just say that these sketches depict two men who were, quote, seen around Keddie. They describe the guy on the left, the one with longer hair, as being a white man between 28 and 30 years old, between 5'11 and 6'2 with dark blonde hair and gold-framed sunglasses. The guy on the right, so the shorter hair guy with the mustache, is also a white man described by police as being between 30 and 32 years old with a black mustache and greasy black hair combed back off his face. Police say he's also wearing gold-framed sunglasses as well. So the sunglasses could be why we don't really see the eyes in the sketches. Right. But there's something else about these sketches that police aren't saying publicly at the time. And that's that one of the sketches, the guy with the mustache, bears a noticeable resemblance to this guy named Marty Smart, who just so happens to be Justin's stepfather.
1: Oh, Okay, now that puts a whole different look at this whole dream scenario. Mm -hmm. Right away, that makes me wonder if this whole dream thing isn't Justin just trying to cover for Marty. Well, here,
0: here's a picture of Marty. So you tell me what you think.
1: Uh, I mean, I don't see a super clear resemblance, but there's the mustache, there's the hair combed back off his face. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a boy like Justin being able to tell the police that he saw his own stepfather commit murder.
0: I also find it hard to believe that, like, you wouldn't recognize him. So, you know what I mean? Like, he's, like, making up a sketch unless, unless what you're saying is he'd be, like, covering for him as a kid.
1: Yeah, but then again, like, would he even have, like, the consciousness to do that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough for adults to cope with the emotional fallout of an event like this, let alone, you know, a 12-year-old kid. So, I don't know. Maybe he's covering for him. Maybe it's completely subconscious. Maybe it's nothing. I don't know. And it might be nothing, but here's what we know
0: about Marty and why maybe police would have been considering him. He's a Vietnam veteran with a criminal past who's done inpatient treatment at the VA for PTSD. And according to multiple accounts, he is not a good dude. To give you some examples, the Plumas News reported that he allegedly threatened his wife Marilyn with a knife during an incident in 1980. People Investigates alleges that Marty had a violent temper and abused both his wife and stepson. And on this same episode, Sheila Sharp claims that Marty once tried to run Marilyn and Justin over with his car. Now, none of these allegations against Marty have ever been proven in a court of law. But as you can imagine, between the small town rumor mill and now his somewhat resemblance to the sketch, police want to have a word with him. And not just with Marty but with an old VA pal who's living with Marty's family this guy named John Bobaday who's much better known as Bo and according to Jane Braxton Little's reporting for the Sacramento Bee both of these guys are considered suspects they're questioned together by police and during questioning Marty says some things that stand out to police as odd He tells law enforcement that he heard a hammer was used in the murders and that, by the way, he is missing a hammer himself. It's this expensive brand name claw hammer with a blue plastic handle. His description doesn't match the murder weapon found at the scene, but it's like a weird thing to mention. And so police just kind of like take note of it. But this isn't even all Marty says. Here, I am going to read you this direct quote from People Investigates. It says, Marty says that Justin could have been at the crime
1: scene without Marty detecting him. End quote. Okay, so is Marty saying that he was there but didn't know Justin was there? Like, is he putting himself at the crime scene?
0: The documentary goes out to like spell exactly what the implication is, and that being that Marty was there. Here's the thing, though. Apparently, both Marty and Bo have alibis for the night of the murder. As the Plumas News reported, they tell police that they were both at the Keddie's backdoor bar with Marty's wife, Marilyn. And when officers follow up, they find numerous witnesses who can put them all at the bar around 10 p.m. And Marilyn confirms she was there with them. And all the witnesses describe Marty and Bo as wearing these, like, flashy three-piece suits and sunglasses inside Honestly, almost as if they wanted to be noticed. But according to this same article, Marty and Bo weren't at the bar all night. At some point, they made a stink about like the music or something and they left with Marilyn. But Marty wasn't about to like let it go. So apparently he called the bar once he got home to complain even more. And then he and Bo went back to the bar until closing time.
1: Okay, hang on. Let me make sure I've got all this. Marty and Bo go to the bar, dress to the nines, then... In sunglasses,
0: mind you. That's one part that really sticks out to me. Sunglasses.
1: Oh, for sure. And then they get mad at the music and leave. Mm-hmm. So mad that Marty is like, I have to give them even more pieces of my mind. Makes this phone call. And then everything's fine and dandy and they go back to the bar. It's
0: a little strange, right? Like,
1: yeah. almost like they're, they're trying to make an alibi? Yeah, like almost like dropping specific... Comes putting pins and things, yeah. lining things up.
0: So police's intuition should be tingling. I mean, all of this, the hammer, the weird remark about Justin, some missing time on Saturday night. It's all there for law enforcement to dig deeper into. And yet, they seem to let it drop. According to People Investigates, police don't interview either Marty or Beau again. Marty and Beau both move out of Teddy shortly after the murders, and by September of 1981, with no new suspects, no new leads, and no clues still about Tina's fate, the investigation has hit a wall. For almost three long years, that's pretty much how it stays— There are some blips that pop up on police's radar from time to time. People connected to other murders in Northern California who get ruled out as possible suspects. But neither local police, the FBI, or the California Department of Justice make any breakthroughs. The horror at the cabin stays frozen in time. That is until April of 1984 when police get the phone call they've been waiting for According to the Oroville Mercury Register, the caller tells dispatch that they were out collecting bottles near Feather Falls in Butte County, about 50 miles due west of Keddie, when they stumbled across a part of a human skull. Police go out to the area that the bottle hunter indicates, where they find more bones, and more importantly, enough of the skull that they're hoping they can ID it with dental records. Law enforcement transfers all of the remains to a local lab for examination, but before they get a positive ID, they get another phone call. Here, listen to this call that's posted on Ketty28.com.
3: I was uh, watching the news mm-hmm. and they were talking about the uh, scrawling cop at the telephone right. they out for any help mm-hmm. and uh, I was just wondering if you thought of uh, the uh, murder up in, Kennedy, up in County a couple of years ago where a 12 year old girl was never found this is, um, I'm pretty sure it's a male fault. ok, rock up yeah, just maybe 12-year-old girl, might be big for a 10-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And that was thirty K-E-D-I-E? Uh, K-E-D-I-E. Yeah, okay. i in Clueless County. And yeah. yeah. a couple years ago? A couple years ago, years ago. Okay. I'll, I'll let know Okay. Thank you. Okay. Can you a yeah.
2: Thank you. Thank yeah. you.
1: So there's a lot of interference on the call. Like, it's pretty hard to make out. But this guy's calling in saying, hey, heard you found her skull. Could it be this girl? And the dispatcher says something about a 10-year-old boy and, like, the skull is his?
0: Yeah, so according to Madison Wade's reporting for ABC 10 News, the caller says, quote, I was watching the news and they were talking about the girl found at Feather Falls. I was just wondering if you thought of the murder up in Ketty in Plumas County a couple years ago, where a 12-year-old girl was never found, end quote.
1: And I guess it just feels strange to me that this dispatcher would just volunteer that the police think that the skull belongs to a 10-year-old boy.
0: I thought so too, so I kind of did some digging around and I found an article in the Chico Enterprise Record that mentions investigators had a theory that the remains could belong to a missing 10-year-old from San Francisco, this kid named Kevin Collins. So if that was already in the press then maybe it's less strange for the dispatcher to say, like, yeah, you know, this, this, is, this is the talk going around. This is what we kind of believe. I don't know.
1: I just love that the, the caller was also like, oh, well, I just thought, you know, maybe this 12-year-old girl could have been mistaken for a 10-year-old boy, but you guys know best. Yeah, it's, it's strange. And it's not necessarily
0: right because, like, for months, no one could tie the remains definitively to that boy. And in June of 1984, that's when the identification comes back. The bones near Feather Falls don't belong to Kevin Collins. Dental records confirm that they actually belong to Tina Sharp. While the discovery answers the huge question about whether or not Tina had somehow survived, it raises a ton more questions at the same time. Even the experts seem to disagree about when Tina died. On June 22nd, Ken Payton quotes the Plumas County Sheriff in the Sacramento Bee, saying experts believe Tina died sometime in November of 1981. So that would have been about six months after her family was killed. But then five days later, the sheriff goes on record with another paper and broadens the time frame, saying, quote, sometime prior to last fall. So that would have been any time between April of 81 and the fall of 83.
1: I feel like none of these are answers. There's just more questions. Right. I mean, assuming Tina survived for, honestly, any length of time after the murders, they still don't know where she was, what she was doing, or why the abductor wanted to keep her alive in the first place.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this development is like this whole case in a nutshell. Like, every time someone thinks they know something, it just explodes into a mushroom cloud of more unanswered questions.
1: Yeah. So, can law enforcement tell how Tina died? They can't determine a
0: cause of death, but they're pretty sure she was murdered. Now, the discovery of Tina's remains kick up a ton of local publicity for a while. But once the news cycle moves on, the case just goes cold again. Like, finding her remains didn't actually bring them any closer to finding out who abducted her, why, or who killed the family. The surviving Sharp kids, Sheila, Greg, and Ricky, spend their childhoods in foster care as anniversary after anniversary goes by. First, it's five years, then 10 years. And with each passing year, the Sharps and others who still remember the Ketty murders do their best to keep their hopes for justice alive. In 1996, 15 years after the murders, a man named Robert Joseph Silvera Jr. confesses to the Ketty killings after he's arrested on suspicion of 17 other murders. But according to David Keller's piece in the Westwood Pine Press, police check their records and find out Robert was behind bars in April of 1981. So while he pleads guilty to two murders up in Oregon and definitely is, you know, a killer, he's not this killer. Fourteen more years go by and during that time, Marty Smart and Beau Bobaday die. The Sharps cabin is condemned and demolished and the Ketty murders get some local attention every April when the anniversary rolls around. And every once in a while, maybe police get the occasional tip, but the case doesn't move in any kind of significant way. So in 2013, now 32 years after the murders, a special investigator named Mike takes over the case. As it turns out, this isn't Mike's first go-around with the killings, because back in 81, Mike was a deputy with the Plumas County Sheriff's Department. He was fired a couple of weeks before the murders, only to get rehired right after. But he was banned from working on the Ketty case.
1: What? Yeah. That seems really strange. Like, this was the biggest investigation in the area. Like, I guess I'd imagine that the department would need the help. I agree. I think it's weird.
0: But I think it's weird just like everything else about this case. So... Mike spends the next three years going over the case files with a fine tooth comb, turning the original investigation basically upside down, and along the way, Mike makes some shocking discoveries. He finds some pretty serious mistakes like how the cabin apparently wasn't secured right away and how police didn't set up any roadblocks on the one road leading in and out of Ketty. Procedural errors that could have made the difference between a solved case and an unsolved case. Along with procedural stuff Mike also finds evidence that seems to have been forgotten about. So you remember that 911 call I played you, right? Of the person who said, like, yo, that might be Tina Sharp's skull. Has anyone, like, checked that out? Yeah. So according to Marcella Corona's piece in the Reno Gazette Journal, he finds a cassette tape of this call just, like, sitting at the bottom of an unopened evidence box. Somehow, this tape hasn't been examined for over 30 years. Like, since it came in, no one in the
1: department ever followed up on it i'm never trusting an evidence box again i am this stunned, is like
0: right i i literally thought of the the one with the investigations like all the evidence was missing the
1: unsolved mysteries <laughs> yes tape just yes. In, sitting in the box by itself this is that was this just overlooked this is that all over again but it's not the only piece
0: of evidence that seems to have been overlooked back in 81 so I already told you that Marty Smart and his buddy Bo were never really followed up with as suspects, and they left town after the murders. But as Mike learns, Marty left his wife Marilyn behind. But he wrote her a letter a couple of weeks later. And I don't have the whole letter, but I do have a very important quote from the letter. And I want you to read it for
1: everyone. It says, quote, I've paid the price of your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. End quote. Uh, I'm sorry, that sounds like a confession. Doesn't it? According to the Reno Gazette-Journal, this letter
0: was also overlooked during the original investigation and never entered into any of police's evidence logs.
1: So they didn't even know it was there? There was no record of it even existing? No, no. And as Mike keeps digging,
0: he discovers that this letter isn't the only time Marty appears to have confessed. As Victoria Metcalf reported, Marty's old VA counselor reaches out to Mike at some point and tells him something shocking. According to the counselor, Marty confessed at a VA facility in Reno, Nevada, just a couple of weeks after the murders. Then
1: why didn't this counselor
0: report it back in 81? The counselor did report it back in 81. Oh
1: my God.
0: Not to police in Ketty, but to the Department of Justice, who you'll remember were working with local authorities via the FBI. Now, here's where things start to get a little messy because, as this same Plumas news piece reported, the FBI agents on the case in 81 weren't homicide investigators, they specialized in organized crime. What? Now, I'm not going to speculate about things that have never been proven, but I will tell you that there are rumors floating all over the Internet, not about Marty Smart having mob connections, but about his old buddy, Bo. The Plumas News, People Magazine, The Sacramento Bee, and other source material in my research mention Bo's alleged links to mafia activity back in Chicago. And over the years, these possible links have given birth to a theory that Mike has to consider at that point. What if Bo was an informant for the FBI? What if they let this little fish go for a murder case in hopes of catching a bigger fish in the Chicago mob?
1: Okay, but let him go for not a murder case, the murder of four people and most of them kids. Again,
0: it is just a theory and Mike's never been able to prove or disprove it, but it's wild to think about. As Mike starts to go public with some of his findings in 2016, the case takes yet another twist. A local junk collector finds a hammer out in the woods, and at first he just tosses it into a lake just down the road from where the Sharp Cabin used to be, figuring it's just crap. But then he finds a website all about the Ketty murders that details Marty Smart's weird statements about his missing hammer. And this guy realizes he might have found that missing hammer specifically. So police retrieve the hammer from the lake, and it does match Marty's description. And while it's too rusted to pull prints or DNA from, it's a huge coincidence, right? For sure. Now, ultimately, the hammer doesn't have any DNA. But in 2018, Special Agent Mike announces that something else does. Police have been able to pull DNA off of a piece of tape that was found at the crime scene near Sue Sharp's head. And get this. They get DNA off of it, and they say that it
1: matches a living suspect. Wait, so not Bo or Marty?
0: Well, they're dead, so... I guess not. The suspects aren't named, but like you said, since Bo and Marty are, you know, dead by 2018. Right. Who? Right. If not them, who? So our crime junkies are probably like sweating because you can see we're dangerously close to the end of the episode and dangerously close to answers, but we just don't have them yet. Including a possible answer to one of our biggest questions, Britt, about why the killers would bother to take Tina Sharp. Investigator Mike wonders if maybe Tina had been sexually assaulted before the murders, if maybe she was pregnant.
1: But there was no way to tell that from her remains, right? No, there just wasn't
0: enough of her recovered to check for it, and and her remains were too decomposed. She was skeletal by that time. The last real update that came was in April of this year from Mike and other members of local law enforcement, when they told ABC 10 News They feel like they're closer than ever to solving this case. And they believe that at least two accessories after the fact are still alive. They're hoping that time, conscience and justice will win out in the end, giving Sheila and her siblings the closure that's been brutally denied to them for over four decades. I mean, it sounds like they have so much evidence there, but they Mm -hmm. still need some people to come forward. They still need people to talk. Maybe after all these years, allegiances have changed. Maybe it is weighing heavily on someone's conscience, but they need someone to talk. If you have any information about the murders of Sue Sharp, John Sharp, Dana Wingate and Tina Sharp, please call the Plumas County Sheriff's Office at 530-283-6360. You can find that phone number in the show notes. You can also find all of our source material for this episode on our website, CrimeJunkiePodcast.com.
1: And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Crime Junkie Podcast.
0: We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So, what do
2: you think, Chuck? Do you approve? You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.
3: Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth.